The following is a pre-recorded program. Nine oh six in News Radio six eighty WPTF. Tom Curdy here on a Monday night. I believe it's August the fifth. I can't believe that we're this far into the summer, but then again, it'll be all right with me when the summer's over because my favorite month of the year is October, and that's the only way we can get there. Tonight, we're going to talk about some history. And, and of course, you know, if you're a regular listener, that we like to talk about history. And I've got in front of me a, a book that uh, I really have enjoyed reading. It's called North Carolina's Revolutionary Founders. It's actually a collection of essays edited by Dr. Jeff Broadwater, who was on with us here about six or eight weeks ago, talking about a book about James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and so on, and a new guest who's sitting in the studio with us, Dr. Troy Kickler, who um, works for the Department of, Department of Archives and History. Is, is that did I get that right? Correct. Correct. Okay. He says he is an historian at the North Carolina Office of Archives and History. And the, um, there's a blurb on the back of this book that uh, I think sort of hits it on the head. And it says this book is the fi first significant addition to the history of revolutionary North Carolina in a generation. And the blurb comes from Dr. William Link, who is a professor of history at the University of Florida. And he has written a history of North Carolina, I think, or, yes. or, or parts yes, of North Carolina. And so we've got Troy Kickler from the Department of Archives and History with us. He contributed an essay, and he is the co-editor of the book, and Dr. Jeff Broadwater. Dr. Jeff, are you there? I'm here. Okay, I always like to make sure the, the electronic stuff is working. I, I'm always assured that it is, but nothing like testing it out. Um, I, I, I've got to tell one little story, and then I want you, you two fellows— who have edited this book to to give us a, a, a kind of a history that forms the backdrop, and in fact, you two have written an, an essay uh, to introduce the the uh, essays by the individuals, but that is a covering essay of the history of uh, North Carolina uh, during the Revolutionary period, during the war, uh, the background to the Revolutionary period, the war, and the period uh, leading up to the the uh, right Constitution. And North Carolina is an interesting story, particularly at the end of that, because they were uh, having a problem deciding that they wanted to join the Union. And uh, they didn't want to, and then they did want to. And in fact, North Carolina was the 12th of the 13 colonies. Only Rhode Island came in later, and the country was already in operation, if I remember correctly, when they uh, okayed uh, the Constitution. But I was in downtown Raleigh one day, and I was sort of halfway lost, if you— if you think about this, I was, I think, on Bloodworth Street or Person Street or something, but I was close to the Krispy Kreme donut shop or the governor's mansion, whichever is the, the landmark you would want to locate. Uh -huh. But in looking for at the street signs, I realized that I had a veritable history of the state of North Carolina in the Revolutionary period unfolding because there were streets like uh, Lane Street and uh, Jones Street and and Person Street and so on, which and Blunt. Street, which were all named after revolutionary people because they were the people who decided at the Capitol who would be in Raleigh circa 1791. And so uh, I thought, well, if, if I was taking a test and they said, list some Revolutionary War people, all I have to do is go out and drive down the streets and write the names down. But they may, they may be some of the names that we hear tonight. I don't know how you, you two folks will want to do this, who will want to start, and maybe you'll be passing it off a la football. 
But could you, you two, Dr. Broadwater and uh, Dr. Kickler, uh, give us an overview of uh, the revolutionary period so that we will have some sense of where the people who wrote the essays that are in this book that you have edited uh, fit in? And I don't know who wants to go first. Well, yeah. Jeff, do you have a preference? Uh, well, I can get it started. All right. Uh, okay, there you go. And you, just, Troy, just just sort of uh, jump in. Uh, we we do start with an, an essay, which is an overview of North Carolina during this period. Uh, we thought that a lot of readers, particularly student readers, might not be very familiar with with the era. We also thought it would help readers. Uh, uh, appreciate the individual essays and save the individual contributors from going into repetitive detail about the period. But uh, you might say the story starts in 1763 uh, with the end of the, the French and Indian War, in which the British uh, wrest control of Canada from the French. Um, that victory creates some problems for the British, they come out of the war with a substantial war debt. Uh, they also have to bear the expense of administering a, an expanded empire. Uh, and so that's when they begin to impose new taxes and regulations on the colonies. Um, and uh, North Carolina is one of the, one of the you might say, hotbeds of resistance to, uh, to the new British uh, policies. Um, becomes really one of the most uh, radical states. Um, and, of course, in April of 1776, the North Carolina Convention passes the Halifax Resolves, which makes North Carolina the first state, uh, to, or first colony, to call for independence from Great Britain. Now, I, I get the right, because it's my program to kibitz a little bit here, okay. uh, Dr. Broadwater, and I... Uh, uh, I just want to point out that, that that date that you've just laid out, April 12th, is one of the two dates on the state flag. And North Carolina, I, we would underline again, was the first state as a, a political entity to call for a revolutionary action. Uh, yeah, that, that, that is correct. And the other date on the uh, state flag is May 20th, 1775. Now, there's a debate whether there was an actual Mecklenburg Declaration of in Independence but uh, uh, if it, there, there were the Mecklenburg Resolves, but, uh, you know, was there the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence? But the point is, is that May 20th, 1775, the date at the top of the flag, commemorates the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. And then the bottom date commemorates the uh, ha Halifax Resolves. And as Jeff was saying, uh, uh, on a April 12th, by a unanimous vote, um, <clears throat> 83 to 0, uh, the delegates at the Fourth Provincial Congress empowered the delegates at the Continental Congress to work with delegates from other colonies to declare independency from Great, Great Britain, if they were so headed uh, in that way. And then one other thing I wanted to remind uh, the li listeners, as uh, Jeff was saying, um, North Carolina became a hotbed of Revolutionary War activity. Many people think of Boston, Philadelphia, um, um, you know, cities like that. But there, there, were, there was a lot of Sons of Liberty activity here in North, North Carolina, and, and one of the biggest protests occurred on, in Wilmington after the Stamp Act was passed. 
Yeah, and I think you know we might might think for a minute about you know why North Carolina was uh, uh, really in the in the vanguard of the, the revolutionary movement. Uh, I think one thing that uh, may have been a factor was the fact that the state had a relatively uh, under underdeveloped economy. It was a relatively poor state, um, depended on imported manufactured goods, goods imported from from Britain, which tended to drain hard currency out of the colony, uh, which uh, made it hard for North Carolinians to, to pay tax and to pay debts. So I think taxes, you know, taxes and debts became a, became a very sensitive issue. Um, and there was another uh, another issue I think that was unique to North Carolina. Uh, it was a, called the foreign attachment controversy, uh, which had to do with the the authority of North Carolina courts to seize property held by British uh, uh, debtors to North Carolina creditors, if you could follow that. In other words, North Carolina courts claim the power to seize the property of, of, of uh, folks in England to pay the debts of North Carolina uh, creditors. Now, that situation didn't come up very often. Um, it was much more common for folks in North Carolina to owe money to folks, folks in England. But uh, the English government tried to put a stop to that. Um, and uh, the North Carolina Colonial Assembly resisted that bitterly um, to the point that the, so there was sort of a deadlock developed between the Assembly and the royal governor over the jurisdiction of the colonial courts um, and really led to the courts before the revolution shut down. And I think that was a factor in kind of radicalizing the state, and that was an issue you didn't didn't see anyplace else. Basically, kind of the collapse of the judicial system before even the Revolutionary War began. Well, I want to address a question to you two guys and uh, and, and let you think about it. We need to take a break here, so you can be thinking about it. This will turn into a radio tease. But something that you see in North Carolina, I believe, that doesn't at least under that name doesn't turn up in other places is something called the war of the regulation. And that might be an, an, a good place to go now as we move towards 1776, if that's all right with you folks. If we come back and that's not all right, you can say, well, Tom, actually, we need to do this. But but the war of the regulation is something I've always been kind of interested in. And uh, we've got the famous Governor William Tryon down in uh, New Bern uh, to be reckoned with. And one of my favorite trivia questions when I digress, is the fact that the county that we are sitting in here, that, that Troy and I are sitting in, was named for his wife. That's correct, Mar- Margaret Wake. Margaret Wake, uh, who was Governor Tryon's wife. And one, uh, not only do you find that the streets in Raleigh are named for colonial figures, but a lot of the eastern uh, counties, say uh, east of, um, well, Dr. Kicker, I think, is from... Uh, Randolph County, I think you said. That's right. It's and and most of the, a lot of the counties east of there, not all of them. I'm from Wayne County, which was named for a Revolutionary War general, but Cornelius Harnett and other people, Gabriel Johnston, and all were Revolutionary War figures. And so uh, their name is on the land, so to speak, along with. Yeah, Alexander uh, Lillington. Okay. Uh, the county seat of, of yep. Harnett County. Uh, so hold on there, and when we come back, we'll start with the War of Regulation. News Radio 680 WPTF, where it is 918, and we're talking history tonight. 
about a, a relatively new, well, it's a new book. It, the, the ink is probably dry now because it was published on, uh, officially on May 13th, but it's North Carolina's Revolutionary Founders, edited by Jeff Broadwater and Troy Kickler. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. WPTF. Tom Kearney along with uh, Dr. Troy Kickler and Dr. Jeff Broadwater talking about North Carolina's revolutionary founders. Their name is on the land. If you go downtown, the streets are named for them. Uh, their counties named for them. Uh, but uh, we don't tend to hear much talk about them, and they were the people that were dealing with some of what were the fundamental problems that led to the Declaration of Independence and to the writing of the Constitution. Dr. Broadwater, uh, are you willing to take a shot at the, the war for the regulation? Well, I'll uh, I'll try to get it started. Okay. Uh, the, the war of the regulation or the, the regular regulator movement was a uh, protest among mainly small farmers in the western part of the state. It began in the um, uh, mid uh, uh, 1760s. Uh, really began as a peaceful protest movement, but eventually turned violent. Uh, it led to a pitched battle between uh, Western farmers and Eastern Eastern militia at Alamance in uh, in 1771. Um, and historians have debated uh, what caused it, how it ought to be uh, characterized. I see it mainly as a uh, a protest movement against uh, a corrupt and, and undemocratic uh, local governments. Um, the uh, colonial government was really dominated by uh, an Eastern political elite. Um, uh, most of the uh, local officials were not elected by local people, uh, and uh, they tended to exploit uh, the folks who were under them. Uh, one historian has estimated that about uh, half of the tax revenues collected by the sheriffs before the by county sheriffs before the revolution were embezzled by, by the sheriffs. And so I, I see the, the regulator movement as a, as a protest against, uh, as I say, really a kind of a dysfunctional and undemocratic government, which uh, I think helps explain uh, North Carolina's uh, opposition to the, uh, to the uh, adoption of the Constitution on down the road. But that's probably getting ahead of the story. And uh, I'll give... Troy may want to elaborate on that. I know he knows a good bit about it. Yeah, I find uh, the Regulator Rebellion to be a fascinating part of uh, North Carolina history, of colonial history, American colonial history. Um, And and like Jeff said, I I see the Regulator Rebellion as a, a separate tax protest, more of a local event, uh, that showcased uh, disagreements between people in what was called the back country and uh, um, North Carolinians who lived in the east. And as Jeff mentioned, there were accusations of, of cor- corruption among sheriffs. Uh, Tryon was building uh, the Tryon pa- Palace, uh, which a lot of the re- regulators in the back country thought that was a waste of money, a lot of them lived in one or two room houses, and here was here they were paying for this palace, which, by the way, actually turned out to cost twice as much as what the original plans were. So they were uh, upset with that, and um, as Jeff mentioned, uh, the backcountry farmers and the 
state m- m- militia met on a battlefield in what is now a- a- Alamance County, I think on May 17th, 1771, and that the, the militia won, and that ended the Regulator Rebellion. And while it was not, as you pointed out to me, Dr. Kickler, uh, a part of the Revolutionary War per se, it seems to me that it, it was, it's kind of like a warm-up for it, uh, for it in a way. It's, it's inter-Nicene uh, warfare in, in that it's North Carolinian, North Carolinians fighting North Carolinians, but uh, they, they're practicing, so to speak. Well, 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 well that's right, and uh, the reason the Regulator Rebellion is not in North Carolina's revolutionary founders is because of the local nature right. of, of, of the event. But you're talking about like a civil war uh, <clears throat> within a, a war, if you will. And during the uh, American Revolution, there, there was a significant number of loyalists in North Car- Carolina. And mm-hmm. so a lot of the battles were between lo- loyalists from North Carolina and South Carolina and, and Whig forces. But uh, North Carolina's re- revolutionary founders is an attempt to understand why well, try to understand why people contributed to the founding of the United States of America. So uh, there's not a chapter on the loyalist in here. Mm-hmm. If we were writing a book about the American Revolution experience mm-hmm. during uh, in North Carolina, that would be a good third of of the book or more. In fact, it seems like to me, I've tried to keep up with my history reading that the the loyalists are quite often, the number of them and what they did and what happened to them is something that's quite often ignored. And we just, because people are interested in getting on with the story, so to speak, and they are the ones, in in essence, they were losers. One of the most fascinating parts of that to me historically has been the the Highland Scots and the Lowland Scots uh, fighting each other. Uh, one of them were basically loyalists, and the other were basically um, uh, revolutionaries. They wanted independence, and I can never remember which one. That's my problem. Uh, uh, we've got a couple of minutes till we need to take our break. Do, you, do either one of you remember which one was which? Morse Creek Bridge is the the battle during the, the war. Troy, I'm going out on a limb, but I thought the Highland Scots tended to be more loyalist, uh, but... I haven't thought about that. In a long time. <laughs> I, no, I believe you are correct because they lived around the Cross Creek, which is now the Fayetteville area, mm-hmm. and they yeah. went down to Wilmington, and the Patriot forces met them yeah. at Moores Creek yeah. Bridge. Okay, so, yeah. all right. Well, one of the things, uh, a, a fair number of the— uh, there were there were battles in the Civil War, I mean, not the Civil War, in the Revolutionary War, but most of the action in North Carolina occurred in the Piedmont, unless I'm mistaken, uh, and in fact near the end of the war. But I, I, this may be something that I need to be filled in. I'm thinking when Cornwallis made his trek through North Carolina and General Nathaniel Green was, was facing him off. Those are the, mostly the battles that we hear about and remember. Yeah, they're, um, the beginning... Of the world, actually, before the Declaration of Independence, there was the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge near mm-hmm. the Wil- Wilmington area. Right. Small right. conflict compared to what would come later, like the Battle of the Guilford Courthouse. Right. But then a lot of attention was paid to the northern colonies. Well, let me back up. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The, the British hoped to tap into uh, this loyalist sentiment 
in North Carolina early in the war, make a long story short, their attention was diverted to the northern colonies. And then Cornwallis and Clinton and some others uh, had Gage had some uh, resurrected the idea of tapping into loyalist sentiment in 1780. And that's when you get these battles in the Piedmont. Yeah. We're going to get the fight. Hold on. We, we, we need to take a break here, Dr. Broadwater, and then we'll come back right after this. The following is a pre-recorded program. 933 in News Radio WPTF. Tom Kearney here with Dr. Jeff Broadwater and Dr. Troy Kickler. Dr. Broadwater is, uh, has been a professor at Barton College. Dr. Broadwater, you have retired now, haven't you? Yes, I'm emeritus now. Okay, I wanted to make sure before I said that. And Dr. Kickler is a, a research historian with the Department of Archives and History in, in downtown Raleigh. Did Correct. I do, do all right on that? Yes. And um, they are the co-editors of a book of essays. I think there are 13 or 14 essays uh, about North Carolina's revolutionary founders. And uh, before the night's over... One of you gentlemen can explain to us what an ordinary founder is, and I guess a non-ordinary founder. I never, I, I don't dislike the concept. I just had never heard of it before. But uh, we'll wait on that. We, What I want us to do is to, to get the war over, because most of us know that the colonists were able to expel the British uh, from North America, not from North America, but from the colonies. But what what happened then is when the story begins to get even more interesting with the, the Articles of Confederation and ultimately the Constitution. And one place where North Carolina has an interesting history is in the ratification of that Constitution that is joining the Union. But before we talk about that, that was a little tease. I need to tell you that uh, tomorrow night, Dr. Mike Walden will be here with his monthly evaluation of the economy. Uh, Wednesday night, we're going to have a nostalgia night. Thursday night, Rod Gonski, a meteorologist, is going to be here, and we're going to talk about the weather. And on Friday night, we're going to have a trivia night. So uh, that's what's coming up this week. We have our schedule posted on our website each uh, Monday morning. It didn't make it in today for several technical reasons, but uh, I think John Sauter put it. John, you put it on the uh, Facebook and places like that, don't you? And uh, we want to thank John for looking out for us tonight. Dr. Troy Kickler is in the studio with me, and Dr. Jeff Broadwater is in, I would imagine, his abode, his house in Wilson, North Carolina, where he is retired after years of service to Barton College. Um, the uh, Give as much time or as little time to the war as, as you would like and talk about where North Carolina finds itself during the Confederation period. What what Where were the, the different colonies during the war and in the period after the war, before the Constitution is is written and adopted. Gentlemen? Well, I'll finish. Okay. Uh, I'll uh, okay. take off where uh, um, I'll start where, where I left off about the, the war itself. Then we can talk about the Articles of Confederation. Right. Thing. But basically, uh, before the break, I was saying that uh, the British commanders had refocused their attention on the South because they were hoping to tap into loyalist sentiment there. They wanted to at the beginning of the year, I mean, the beginning of the war, but their attention was diverted. Now they're focused more on uh, places like North Carolina and South Carolina. So that's when you start getting around 1780s, 81, the Battle of Kings Mountain, Battle of Ram Ramsers Mill. You get the Battle of Gil Guilford Courthouse. 
you have Nathaniel Green's race to to the Dan. Uh, and then I was re- recently I was uh, reading some of uh, Lord Cornwallis's let, let letters and um, he was talking about how uh, there weren't as many, quote, friends, end quote, in North Carolina as he had anticipated. So maybe he overestimated loyalist sentiment in North Carolina or maybe the loyalists were afraid um, uh, to be public with their sentiment because the Revolutionary War was also, well, all wars are violent, but the Revolutionary War, there's some violent episodes during the Revolutionary War, like uh, Powell's Massacre, for instance, which occurred close to where Burlington is uh, right now, where the Whigs tricked the Loyalists into thinking that they were Loyalists, and then they took swords out of the scabbards and started hacking away. Just so we can make sure the people you're calling Whigs are those people who are not Loyalists. They're the other side. They're uh, what— you they're for the, they're they're anti-British. They're for the, the war. Yeah, pa- patriots. Right. Okay. Whigs, right. the same folks. Okay. Okay. So, so I wanted to finish that thought. All right. There. That's fine. That's fine. So, uh, but the the war eventually ends, and uh, uh, the future of the the uh, the colonies is there. And it was during the period of the war, the colonies, as I recollect, were operating pretty much as independent states unto themselves, and that's. The situation, they were bound very loosely by the Articles of Confederation. Does that sound right to you, Dr. Broadwater? That, uh, that does. Uh, the Articles of Confederation was, in a sense, the first American constitution, but it created a very weak central government. Uh, there was no president, uh, no federal court system. Uh, there was Congress, but Congress couldn't impose taxes, so it couldn't pay its bills. It couldn't regulate trade, so it couldn't um, retaliate effectively when the British discriminated against American trade. It couldn't even enforce uh, the obligations that the United States had undertaken in the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Revolutionary War. So we had a very weak central government. Uh, North Carolina was almost left to fend for itself. Uh, And politically, the state came out of the war deeply divided. There was not only the uh, uh, division between loyalists and Whigs or patriots, but also the patriots were divided. Um, historians tend to uh, just see it as a division between conservatives and radicals who disagreed over issues like whether the state should issue paper money, whether they should return loyalist property that had been confiscated, or whether North Carolinians should pay debts that they owed to uh, British merchants that were incurred before the war. So you had a state that was sort of left to fend for itself, but that was deeply divided politically. Was the question of where whether the, the men who had served in the military were to be paid at full value a, a question yeah, that they entertained? There, there was a problem. There was that problem of, uh, of uh, back wages to uh, uh, men that served in the military uh, and to pretty much... Uh, the collapse of the North Carolina currency. Uh, I think um, one of our contributors, or it may have been in the introductory essay, made the point that it's uh, at one point in the period, I think 800 North Carolina dollars were, were equal to one gold dollar. They were virtually worthless. Well, North Carolina had something to sell, and 
And I'm thinking here of what we call naval stores now, and I think that's one reason that North Carolina was regarded as very valuable to the British because of its supply of naval stores, which came from the the pine trees. We're talking tar and pitch and turpentine and things like that. Uh, But uh, one of the problems always would be how do you get it out uh, to where it could be shipped to somewhere else because you either had to take it to Petersburg or ship it down one of the South Carolina rivers to uh, to Charleston or somewhere like that. Yeah, and that was a and transportation was a pervasive problem in North Carolina. Poor transportation system really uh, retarded economic development, and even the naval stores industry suffered as a result of the war because before the war, the British had paid a bounty or a subsidy. Mm-hmm. To producers of naval stores because, of course, they wanted them for the Royal Navy. With the war, that uh, subsidy went away. I've always imagined that had the naval stores not exi- existed, that the British had said, oh, you want to go? Go. Goodbye. You, <laughs> you, you have a lousy economy and you have nothing we need. But uh, this w- w- was a, a made a different story. Now, there were problems that, that you've outlined, uh, both of you, uh, and somewhere about 1786, um, People, I think, in Virginia became aware that uh, that this loose confederation wasn't getting the job done, and, and they called for a convention, I think, at Annapolis. Is that not correct? Uh, that's, yeah, that's right. There was a convention held in Annapolis, Maryland, to consider giving Congress the power to regulate trade. Mm-hmm. And it's out, it's out of that. And I, as I remember, no North Carolina delegates actually made it to the Annapolis convention. Yeah, well, yeah Hugh Williamson was... Uh, made it to Annapolis, but by the time he got there, the convention had adjourned, so uh, he didn't have much input. This may be out of order, but just for the sake of, uh, of you know, mixing things up a little bit, one of the essays is about Hugh Williamson, and I went through the North Carolina school system and took North Carolina history when it was offered, but I don't remember learning much about Hugh Williamson. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of uh, you've described him, or, or the author whose essay is in the book, Jennifer Do- Davis Doyle, yeah. calls him North Carolina Federalist. Could you talk about Hugh Williamson a little bit uh, as a Federalist? Yeah, uh, briefly. Yeah, Williamson um, was uh, was a medical doctor, uh, amateur scientist, um, originally, I believe, from Pennsylvania, uh, ended up uh, in North Carolina, uh, in Edenton, actually, when he was returning to the American colonies after the um, after the revolution had begun, um, and uh, ended up in Edenton, really because he was trying to avoid the British British blockade, uh, becomes a Surgeon General in the North Carolina uh, uh, military forces, um, goes into politics, uh, and becomes a strong uh, nationalist, an advocate of a stronger uh, central government. Uh, is a, is a delegate to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia and was the most active of the North Carolina delegates uh, and then becomes a leader of the movement to ratify the Constitution once it's, uh, once it's sent to the states for ratification. He's the kind of, guy, kind of guy who would have hung out with people like Ben Franklin, you're saying? He would have. He's sometimes described as North Carolina's Benjamin Franklin. Okay, and, and, and uh, so uh, that's an essay that... Uh, I, uh, I think that the person who purchased this book, and by the way, it's, it's available in most bookstores. It's a UNC Press book, so you won't have any trouble getting it. Amazon and Barnes & Noble and people. Dr. Kickler? Yeah, one thing, uh, 
Well, a couple other things about Hugh Williamson I'd like to mention, too. He was one of the more influential um, North Carolina delegates. Um, he was one of the most vocal delegates at the Constitutional Convention. He spoke over 70 times. Some people did not appreciate that, though, because there were other <laughs> delegates who said no one talked so much as Hugh Williamson yet said so little. Um, but Hugh Williamson, the um, it was his idea to um, to have the impeachment pro process mm-hmm. that's in the con- con- Constitution. How we go about impeaching federal officials? Uh, there were some senators or some delegates who wanted um, senators to have life terms. Right. Some who wanted them to have seven-year terms. Hugh Williamson advocated for six-year terms, and that's what we. Well, we, we, we have now. So there were people who were listening to what Hugh Williamson right. had to say, even though sometimes what he said might have went in one ear and out, out the other. Well, do you know, I find reading about that convention and the different plans and particularly the work of James Madison were to be really one of the most fascinating because it, it, the different ideas they came up with and why they came up with them, just as you outlined, there were different, several different solutions to this And one last thing about Hugh, I mean, as Jeff mentioned, Hugh Williamson was a man of many talents, Mm -hmm. Um, doctor, philosopher, uh, politician, but he was also an uh, historian. He was writing a history of North North Carolina during the early 1800s. And in fact, when uh, Archibald Murphy, who there's a chapter Mm -hmm. that includes... Uh, a comparison of Nathaniel Macon and Archibald Murphy's political thoughts. Archibald Murphy was wanting to write a history of North Carolina in the 1830s, so he was using Hugh Williamson's uh, work as, as a source. And uh, I want to recommend two chapters because they're because they're good and because the, our our co-editors authored them. Dr. Kickler's chapter in in this collection is called Two North Carolinians, Same Goal, Different Approaches, An Examination of the Political Lives and Philosophies of Nathaniel Macon, probably the most conservative a man in America, and Archibald Murphy. And citizens of Raleigh, of course, know about the Murphy School down on, I think, Person Street. And uh, the uh, Dr. Broadwater, I've got to find your chapter now. Um, It's uh, about the three men who signed the Declaration of Independence, Joseph Hughes, John Penn and uh, William Hooper. I think I told you every July 4th for the last 10 years, I've asked that as a trivia question, and nobody's gotten all three of them yet, but I'm going to keep trying. We'll be back uh, to look at the ratification process in North Carolina and wrap up our program right after this. 951 at News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney here. Tomorrow night, Dr. Mike Walden talks about the economy. Tonight, we're talking about North Carolina history and North Carolina history. Uh, not really in the beginning, but at the beginning of the, the uh, national period uh, when when the, the nation comes into existence. And we have with us Dr. Jeff Broadwater and Dr. Uh, Troy Kickler, uh, who have co-edited a book, the title of which is North Carolina Revolutionary Founders. And uh, gentlemen, if we could devote the five or six minutes we have left to uh, kind of a quick run through of the, the ratification process in North Carolina because North Carolina did not exactly leap at the idea of joining the no, union. No, they did not. No, okay. they did not. Dr. Kiffer? Well, at the, uh, well, br- briefly, this is a, f- I'll try to describe a fascinating and detailed history in a couple minutes and then turn the time over. 
uh, to Jeff. After delegates at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787, uh, they wanted to revise, scrap, do away with the Articles of Confederation. So at the Philadelphia Convention, uh, they were debating what the Constitution was going to look like, what phrases were going to be in the Constitution. After they had agreed to a draft, the delegates or the convention submitted it to the various state ratifications to ratify or to approve. Nine approved the Constitution rather quick, quickly. So the new union was formed. That was enough to, to set that's the right. company in motion, so to speak. That, that's right. You need, they needed nine. And that happened rather quick, quickly, but there were some holdouts. Rhode Island was one. Virginia was another. New York was another. And North Carolina uh, was one. And there were um, intense anti-federalist uh, um, and federalist debates that were occurring in those uh, states, well, in all the states, but particularly in those states. And because of the debate in New, New York, we had the Federalist pa- Papers because they were written to convince New York to approve, to ratify the Constitution. But here in North Carolina, we have pa- pamphleteers who are writing uh, for and against or, or, or criticizing the Constitution, saying it has weaknesses or limitations, or they were champions of uh, the Constitution here in North North Carolina. And North Carolina was the only state to have two ratification con- conventions. In 1788, the state voted ni- neither to ratify or reject the Constitution, and it, it's because many of the delegates who had anti-federalist sentiments wanted a Bill of Rights added to the Constitution, because as the Constitution was submitted to the states to ratify, it lacked a Bill of Rights. The state constitution had a declaration of rights in it, so they would ask, why not the national constitution? And so um, that's part of the fascinating history there. And I've had other historians tell me that the ratification minutes, which one can find online if they Google North Carolina ratification minutes, I've had historians tell me that those are some of the best minutes when you compare them with other states, some of the best minutes that exist because the Federalists would pay for editors there, but the North Carolina Federalist had um, a a light editorial hand. You kind of get the, uh, you see the debate as it is, not them trying to paint the Mm anti-Federalists as being rubes or something like that. And then finally, um, one of the best point-counterpoint discussions in that debate is between Samuel Spencer, an anti-Federalist, who was the voice of the anti-Federalist, and James Iredell, who was a leading Federalist and later became um, a U.S. Supreme Court justice on the first U.S. Supreme Court. And there are chapters in North Carolina's revolutionary founders about both, both of those fellas. Can we bring Dr. Broadwater in for some closing remarks? The, uh, the, the chapter on Samuel Spencer uh, is, is one of the better chapters. Uh, Spencer was from Anson County, who had been a Superior Court judge for several years and was one of the leaders of the anti-federalist forces uh, at the Hillsborough Convention uh, when the uh, delegates uh, voted uh, not to ratify uh, the Constitution. Uh, we've also got an essay in the book on um, by uh, Kyle Scott on Wiley Jones, who was uh, probably uh, the other leading uh, anti-federalist, a very wealthy planner from Halifax, had been a leader of the radical faction in the North Carolina Assembly for many years. 
Uh, and the Anti-Federalists come off pretty well in the essays. Um, uh, 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 Wiley Jones makes an argument that really went back to Aristotle, and that is that a republic had to be small um, so citizens have a common interest and so citizens could participate in their own, own government. And uh, that was his argument for uh, not transferring more power to the central government. As Troy says, the main issue was that they wanted a Bill of Rights. Uh, and one of the points I thought was interesting, actually, when I was reading the, the essay about Wiley Jones, is that Jones didn't see uh, really any urgency for North Carolina to join the Union because he thought they could join any time they wanted to, and that North Carolina could hold out until the Constitution was amended, um, try to get the best deal they could, and they would then ratify the Constitution. We need, we need to, Jeff, we need to stop right there if we can. Okay. We've run out of time. But thank you very much. I'm glad we got Wiley Jones in this. because. Okay. And ladies and gentlemen, when you read it, you're going to think his name is Willie Jones, but it's pronounced Wiley. I want to thank Dr. Jeff Broadwater and Dr. Troy Kickler for talking about their book, North Carolina's Revolutionary Founders, edited by these two gentlemen and being on our program tonight.